The planet is warming, and humankind continues to expand into previously untouched natural habitats, threatening plants and animals around the world. While combating climate change is a large and multifaceted problem, it may seem relatively simple to curb human expansion through establishing protected areas. But, did you know that not all protected areas are created or managed the same? Open your ears and mind, and let's chat about that. Welcome to GriffinCast, a podcast where we casually chat about science coming out of this College of Biological Science at the University of Guelph, and how that work can affect lives around the world. I'm your host, Michael Lim. With me today is special guest and master student Leonardo Custodi, and we'll be chatting about the differences between protected areas in Canada and what that might mean for protecting animals and increasing species richness. Welcome, Leo. Yeah, thanks for having me. So how would you describe your research if you spoke to some random person on the street? Maybe what the Norris Lab does in general as well. In general, the Norris Lab focuses, well, we're an ecology lab, um, which means we're really focused on how uh, interactions in the natural world affect uh, specific species, as well as the environment on a broader scale. For example, Canada jays is one of our big study species, as well as we do research on cats in urban environments and how they affect uh, other wildlife. For me specifically, I focus on a much broader scale than that. So things like how are protected areas in Canada, government protected areas, as well as protected areas managed by other organizations or individuals can help protect species diversity in Canada. So considering the relatively narrow scope of other people in the Norris lab, is there a reason why you decided to focus on the bigger picture? Yeah. So for me personally, Ryan brought this project to me, but it also intrigued me from a research perspective. So just kind of a bit of background on me as, as a kid, one of my, all my favorite memories were going camping with my family, going to different provincial parks, canoeing, uh, swimming in the lakes, all that kind of stuff. So I really like that aspect of it is doing research on those protected areas that I spent so much time in. Mm. So I, I studied zoology in my undergrad at Guelph, but I also minored in statistics. So I have a bit of a background in data analysis and coding from that. And I felt this project gave me a chance to apply those skills to a, a large data set that's important nationally. You recently published a study titled Canadian Private Protected Areas are Located in Regions of Higher Vertebrate Species Richness Than Government Protected Areas. So in other words, areas managed privately by the Nature Conservancy of Canada, or the NCC for short, have higher biodiversity compared to those managed by the government, or just some random sampled plot of land. Can you briefly describe what biodiversity is and how it's measured for our audience? Yeah, so in a general sense, biodiversity is just the diversity of living things found in a specific area, but also across the, the globe. So for us, we're focused on Canadian biodiversity, but we also had to limit our, our search for where data was available. So we focused specifically on terrestrial vertebrate diversity. Hmm. And um, that's because even though it's important to study things like invertebrates, as well as uh, marine animals, looking at marine protected areas is, is almost a different study system. And also, there's just not a lot of large-scale data on invertebrates across all their taxa. And to measure biodiversity, we use something called range maps, uh, which are created or organized by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. And so these are maps created by experts on uh, individual species. And what they broadly say is, within this range is generally where this species habitat is found. So when it comes to measuring, quote-unquote, number of species on a protected area, 
what we actually measured is this protected area is found in a location where this species possibly could occur. So for our listeners, Leo's study was comparing not only who was managing the protected land, so in the case of the study, either the NCC or the Canadian government, but also how the land came under management in the first place. So this included conservation agreements. This is the case where someone already owns the land, but then certain land use activities are prohibited, say, you know, developing the land to build certain buildings or via direct acquisition. So the land's either purchased or donated to either the government or the NCC. Do you think you'd like to expand upon in that description, Leo? Yeah, so um, conservation agreements are, are important to bring up because I don't think they're a mechanism of conservation that is as widely known as your standard protected areas. So NCC is one, and they're probably the largest organization across Canada that, that creates and manages conservation agreements, but there's also many nonprofits across every province that, that also does the, the same idea. So the, the general concept is instead of purchasing a land outright from an owner, they manage a portion of property owned by an owner for the purpose of conservation, and they limit the use of that land permanently. And this is really great when it comes to things like farmland, ranch lands, for example, in Alberta, where someone may own uh, a set of land where they want to have cattle grazing, but they also would like to protect part of the land, but selling that piece of land could cause future problems for the, the ranch owners. So instead they partner with someone like NCC and uh, manage that portion of land for the purpose of conservation. Oh, okay. So speaking of different types of areas, your study also highlights there's a large discrepancy in average area size between both the NCC and the government. For our listeners who haven't yet had a chance to actually look at the paper, on average, the NCC is overseeing land about one-third the size of the University of Guelph, while government areas on average are close to about half the city of Guelph. So why do you think there is such a large discrepancy between these two different groups, and what implications do you think there are for the management of these different sized areas? Yeah, so the discrepancy in size, first of all, just the amount of resources available um, from the government. So, for example, NCC has less resources than the government in general, just could being a nonprofit. Mm. And while NCC does have more resources available than other smaller conservation organizations, they still are limited in the amount of properties they can acquire or the size of properties they can acquire. Mm. Generally, they're looking at, first of all, they have to look at properties that are available for purchase you know, just what's for sale or what potentially you could reach out to a potential buyer and look at is for sale for the creation of protected areas. And generally those, those giant pieces of land aren't available as opposed to the government uh, where they have many more resources available. And they also can look at things like crown land, which currently isn't protected, but potentially could be uh, repurposed or redesignated as a protected area. Oh. So speaking of how different animals are classified in terms of how endangered and at risk they are, there are many different categories that can be used or classification systems to classify species at risk or SAR. Can you explain to our listeners what some of these categories are? For example, what's used by the International Union for Conservation of Nature or IUCN and what they mean? Yeah. So um, the way we classified species at risk wasn't just simply we took IUCN categories or there's also something called the SARA or the Species at Risk Act, um, which is what we use in Canada to designate species at risk. And so we kind of used a combination of, of both of these uh, to assess species at risk. So yeah, just to give you an idea, the IUCN has um, seven main categories for species at risk. So there's least concern. This is something that under the current assessment, looking at things like um, current population size of these animals, uh, how their current habitat is affected. So for example, a species with a very fragmented habitat um, would be of higher concern than a species where all their habitat is still intact. Then after that, you have near threatened. Uh, which is a species that could qualify for more extreme categories in the future. 
followed by vulnerable, which again, similarly threatened uh, a vulnerable species is something that um, could potentially in the future be at risk of going extinct based on uh, current trends and population decline or what's happening to their habitat. Mm-hmm. Then you have endangered, then critically endangered, which is the species that is at imminent danger of going extinct in the wild, followed by extinct in the wild. And then finally, there's extinct. Extinct, extinct in the wild, that species is still existing in captivity um, and potentially could be reintroduced mm-hmm. in the future, whereas extinct, that species um, no longer exists. The thing with the IUCN species at risk categories is they are done with their global assessments, but that doesn't always work when you're talking about a specific country like Canada. So an example of why this is important would be something like the um, Fowler's toad. Uh, So this is a a species I give as an example of something that globally it's under the least concern category. So there's not really a threat of this species going extinct globally, but in Canada, um, the populations live mostly on the edge of Lake Erie and in Southern Ontario Hmm. and are very much at risk of going extinct. Okay. Your study shows that land privately managed by the NCC has the greatest biodiversity, at least compared to government and randomly sampled areas. But unlike you had predicted, land under conservation agreements have more species richness than that was directly acquired, so either purchased or donated. So why do you think that was? What made this conservation agreement better? Yeah, so that was kind of a a bit of a surprise for us. But I think when we really started thinking over it, it kind of started making a bit more sense. And that's because um, with with a private protected area, so one that the NCC has to has to purchase, the the big restriction there is you have like you have to be able hmm. to acquire that land. So you have to have someone who's willing to sell or you have to negotiate a deal for purchase. Whereas with a conservation agreement, there's a bit more flexibility there. So they're able to do things like reach out to landowners um, where the owner may not want to give up or hmm. sell that portion of land but they may be uh, open to negotiating uh, a way of conserving part of that land. With a conservation agreement, you're more focused on a partnership between the landowner mm. and the nonprofit. I think the big thing there is it, it is more of a partnership and you may, like someone may not want to have lose access to being able to cross over a, a piece of land, for example, if they, they need to get to the other side of, of a, wood, mm. a wood lot to, to work on their farm or something like that. So it, it kind of is more of a, yeah, a partnership um, working towards conservation as opposed to um, unilaterally NCC owns this property and they're, mm-hmm. they're going to manage it. So speaking of what the, how the NCC is managing areas, when you're setting up the background in your study, you mentioned that there are different focuses between the government and the NCC when it comes to what they're trying to accomplish. So for example, the government has to weigh, typically, other concerns other than just animals like protecting national landmarks, while the NCC has focused primarily on ecological concerns since it was first created in the 1960s. Do you expect the differences between the two in terms of how well they are at protecting to change as time moves on? Yeah, um, I think we've we, we've seen this um, just when you start looking at more recent protected areas. So instead of just um, being focused on landmarks, there's also things historically like how government protected areas would protect overprotect certain habitats. And that's not to say overprotection is a bad thing. But mm. for example, somewhere like the Rocky Mountains has these vast national parks Um which are great, you know, as far as protecting species in those areas, but other areas may be underrepresented. So other areas, for example, around the GTA or Southwestern Ontario are, are of need of more protection based on how threatened they are by, by human developments or um, other areas, for example, prairie land potentially um, may need more protection because it doesn't have tourists. People want to go visit Banff. Um, it's a, it's a spectacular, beautiful place, but that's not to say 
that protecting species in the Rocky Mountains is more important than protecting species in somewhere that has less of a reputation for, for drawing in tourists. If you look at the most recent Environment Canada reports, uh, for example, mm. about half of them say that they're, they're, one of their big focuses is targeting large unfragmented pieces of land. And that is really important. It's important to get these large unfragmented lands to prevent them from being fragmented. But at the same time, if those lands are currently unfragmented and, and available, that means they're not under the most imminent threat. And it's important to also consider maybe protecting smaller pieces of land. Mm. So I'm not sure we actually defined this earlier on, but to help our listeners out, can you explain what fragmentation is and why is it so detrimental when it happens? Yeah. Sorry, I, I've been mentioning that a lot because that's my uh, my current research focus is actually on uh, <laughs> habitat connectivity and, and fragmentation. So um, the idea of habitat fragmentation is that two, if you have two pieces of habitat that are the same size, that doesn't mean they're equal. So if you have one piece of habitat that is just one chunk of land, there's nothing breaking it up, um, that is much better for a species on that habitat than something that's fragmented. So that could be, um, for example, it's split across by highways, there's um, pat so there's uh, woodlots between pieces of farms or farmland. It could be split up by any human development. It could be split up by something as simple as a, a mountain, for example. Uh, it creates isolated breeding populations. So if I have a population of, of 50 that isn't fragmented, well, the population's 50. But if I have a population of 50 um, by two pieces of land that are split by a highway, potentially you could see those two populations be considered a population of 25 and a, another population of 25. Um, because they're restricted in their ability to, to breed. It's important to make sure that when we're developing protected areas, um, while it's important to have species diversity, it's also important to make sure we're protecting in a way that animals can reach other protected areas through corridors or pathways, um, allowing them to, to move between and like uh, disperse between populations. Right. So a limitation that you acknowledge in your study, and we talked about briefly earlier on, is that it focused primarily on vertebrate species when calculating species richness. So of course, there's other species that are involved, like say marine ones that you didn't have a chance to look at, or even other say invertebrate species, which of course there are tons of no matter where you are in the world. So one partial explanation that you did not look at that is because there's just a general lack of available range maps. So how do you think this could be improved and how would that occur? Yeah, so I think but kind of by their definition, range maps aren't going to be the most accurate at depicting uh, where a specific species is on, on like a, you know, one by one kilometer scale grid, for example, right. You know, I can't say, oh, this species is going to exist exactly where I am right now, but the kind of idea of them is they broadly categorize where a species potentially could exist. And so I think as far as that goes, they, they serve their purpose, but for, for looking at um, species presence, absence in protected areas, um, as well as in locations across Canada, I think it is important to start considering potential other data sources or potential other um, mechanisms for, for identifying species presence or absence. So ideally you'd have, you know, people go into each protected area in Canada and count all the species they see and do that, I don't know, 50 times a year and, and, you know, yeah. really get a sense of uh, how many, what species mm. are there. But of course the resources aren't available for that. So other potential options are things like using citizen science data. So eBirds, an initiative that's uh, through the University of Cornell's Ornithology Lab um, that mm. basically tracks this. So it gets people to report sightings of birds um, across the world. Instead of only having researchers counting birds, you're having people, just people who are enthusiastic about birds or just the general public report sightings of, of certain species. Now, obviously, 
to kind of jump into invertebrates, that's that's difficult with invertebrates because if I probably walk down the street, there's probably, you know, a thousand invertebrates somewhere around there, but I, you know, I might see a bee fly by, right? Yeah. And so invertebrates is, I'm not quite sure the the solution to tackling that problem, but I think it really starts with starting to allocate more resources and looking into invertebrate uh, species, just even species declines. For example, if we're looking at something like myriapods, so uh, centipedes and millipedes, uh, and this is a paper I was just reading a few days ago, there's only two, I think there's only 210 of them that have been categorized under IUCN assessments. And I believe that taxa has about 17,000 members that have been identified. So what percentage of that? Yeah. So that's about 1% like of the yeah, okay. 1% yeah. of the taxa has been has been assessed. And so or is that less than 1%? I, I'm not going to do that math right now, but <laughs> um, very small percentage of that that taxa has been assessed. So I think the the question is so the, the bit first step is really doing more assessments on more invertebrates and trying to trying to increase our understanding of how invertebrates are being affected by um, biodiversity declines, uh, as well as climate change and things like that. And then from there, potentially leap into um, having more accurate data sources um, on invertebrates. There are others. So there's the GBIF. Um, I can't remember exactly what that stands for, but they it's another source of large-scale biological data sets. And they do have more things on invertebrates, um, mm-hmm. including like presence of absence data, um, for a certain species. So that is a potential data source that I could look at, but just in a general sense, there's a lot more work that needs to be done, just learning about invertebrates and where they can be, as well as how they're impacted by protected areas. Mm-hmm. So I know you touched upon earlier how just in general, it's a lot harder to classify invertebrates. Like even experts would take sometimes take a long time to tell one taxa apart from another because yep. it can be incredibly similar. But do you think there's also private may just stem from, I guess, a poor perception, I guess <laughs> you could say, of invertebrates. Yeah. Or of course, you have like, oh, you're, you know, bird watchers out there or people who are really interested in seeing wildlife. Like, oh, we could see like three types of beetles in this forest. And people are like, yeah, not that interested. So do you think that's something that should also try to be improved across time? Yeah, I think one thing, so I remember like, you know, I've loved animals my whole life, but I remember one thing I that kind of jumped out to me when I started my undergrad at the University of Guelph was just kind of how interesting invertebrates actually are. I remember, you know, you jump in and you're like, well, I love, I love all these, um, you know, I love cats. I love whatever it is. I love birds. I love, and and those are kind of the things you see in in a lot more like nature documentaries and things of that sense. But when you really get into it, invertebrates, I almost find are are much more interesting because of the variety of them that exist, Hmm. you know, with a, you know, comparing a bird and a, a mammal, for example, you know, they all have hearts, they've got their lungs, they've got, and they do have unique physiological features between them. But when you're talking about an invertebrate, you know, you could have two taxa that are just compl- like, you know, comparing a sponge to um, a beetle, for example, are those are completely different systems of, of how yeah. they work. So I, I do think there, there could be a better job of kind of promoting how interesting invertebrates are, mm. as well as, you know, potentially working on citizen science projects or getting people involved in maybe if you aren't identifying specific taxa, identifying like at the species level, identifying broader scale taxa. So, you know, we know this uh, insect is existing in this area or or things like that. And just kind of broadly improving our database or data sets for invertebrates. Okay. So moving on, (laughs) I find that I think that most people would think that government should be responsible for overseeing any large areas of land especially if you're trying to protect these animals in a non-fragmented space. 
But in your study, you suggest that private management through the NCC, in this case, has increased biodiversity. So should there be more of a switch towards private management where there's more of these collaborations with landowners? Should it be primarily just the NCC going forward? Should it be kept to the similar ratio that is right now between government and non-government bodies? I don't think it's a competition of we should have more government protected areas or we should have more private protected areas relative to the number of government protected areas. I would say that there's just a need for more conservation in general. So um, generally the kind of most recent goal for, for protected area coverage uh, in Canada was set, um, I believe that was set in 1992. And that goal was to have 17% of terrestrial lands and 10% of marine lands covered by protected areas. While that goal is great, a lot of more recent studies uh, have suggested that the goal should be somewhere more to like somewhere more similar to having 30% of hmm. terrestrial areas protected by uh, protected areas. The goal should be just to have more conservation. Government protected areas are the hmm. ones I think a lot of people would associate with, with conservation as protected areas. There's also private protected areas that I discussed in this paper, but there's also been a push for different other different conservation measures. So there's something called IPCAs, um, which is Indigenous Protected and Conserved Areas. And that's been getting a lot of traction. And there's been a lot more of those um, starting to be created hmm. as well as worked on through government funding as well as um, through Indigenous communities independently uh, organizing those. And so that's a very promising potential way to protect land. Mm. So what was your favorite part of doing this research project? I know you already have mentioned before your tie in terms of your interest in animals (laughs) and your ability to apply your statistics background to that kind of work. But was there something that really stood out to you while you're completing the study? Yeah, so I I felt this was, it it felt rewarding to work on this study because you know, when I started, it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to do this assessment and, you know, kind of, we'll see what we discover. And it, it, it was rewarding to, to feel like, you know, the results of my paper actually kind of showed an impact. And also that as far as government protected areas and NCC protected areas go, they are doing better than if I, it's kind of comparing, if I just threw a bunch of darts mm-hmm. on a board and made protected areas there, we can see the government and NCC are both doing a better job of planning their protected areas than, than just throwing darts at a board. I would and hope I, so. so that was really, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, so, it, you know, it, it is, it, it was really encouraging to see the the positive impacts that both government and NCC protected areas had across Canada. If you could go back in time and change one thing about how you carried out your study, what would it be and why? So I think it's a good question. Uh, and I, I think the, the big thing would be to see if I could try to apply more information about invertebrates um, to kind of see how those are impacted. Similarly, uh, it would be interesting to see that, you know, there's just so many taxa, like even just looking at other kingdoms, so looking at plants, looking at fungi, things like that. Mm. So it would be good to, to include more biodiversity in kind of the, the large scale assessment. I still don't know if that was like doable to the same extent with the, with the data that's available. Right. But I think if I could change one thing, it would be to try to include more species than just vertebrates. Because uh, I, I, as you mentioned before, I think it is important to start promoting those as important species that we need to conserve. Mm-hmm. There's also the avenue looking at other alternatives to government protected areas. So this paper was actually based on a paper um, by Richard Schuster. He, he focused on species diversity on indigenous managed lands mm. and, and showing that those um, across three countries had similar or higher species diversity than government protected areas. Mm. Um, that's just one example of kind of how my paper was uh, an application of, of that idea. Mm. And so potentially there's other alternatives to government protected areas that we could be looking at. I only looked at NCC, but there are a lot of uh, different nonprofits across Canada that also create protected areas for the purpose of conservation. So something I'm doing in my master's is I reached out to many of them and I'm trying to include their protected areas in my next analysis because while NCC is, is large and 
um, was easy to work with because they they cover things across Canada. It is important to include even small organizations that manage three protected areas, for example, because those exist and those should be recognized. Mm -hmm. I think that's enough questions from me. We have a few from social media. I've picked a few that I thought were pretty interesting. Our first question is, is there a conservation effort story that has really impacted you? And what was special about that animal and or protection strategy? Ooh, that's a good question. So one I think of is is ospreys. And I mean, the, the conservation effort strategy for that one was as simply as not, it wasn't just this, but identifying a pesticide that was causing harms to ospreys uh, eggshells, as well as like other birds of prey. It's and the so infamous I think DDT. The infamous DDT, yeah. <laughs> and, and what really stands out to me about that one though, is in my lifetime, I'd never saw an osprey until you know, now I'll go up to a park and I'm going canoeing and I'll see, I might see two ospreys or, you know, just seeing the, that bird come back and, mm. and feeling like, well, something we can do even just over the course of, of my lifetime can make an impact. This question may offend you, but I thought it was too good to not ask. It's often said that humans should not interfere with wild animals as what happens to them is part of the natural way of the world. For example, you might see wildlife documentary filmmakers not stopping a predator hunting a prey animal. In that sense, should we not interfere with endangered species and consider their extinction a natural part of life and or evolution? Yeah, so this is, it's a, it's a very interesting question. And, and, and what I would say, so there's kind of two ways I, I've thought about this question in the past. The first one is, I think there's an argument we've already done, we've already interfered with those, those animals. So a lot of conservation initiatives, what we're doing is we're stopping stuff that is caused by, by human impacts whether that's climate change or it's through overhunting or whatever it is, mm -hmm. it's important for us to consider the fact that we're not stopping natural processes from occurring. We're stopping processes that, that humans have kind of perpetuated uh, over, over our existence that have caused these species to decline. On the other side, I think there's a, there's a selfish argument for this for humans. And that's that um, species all over the world are important, not just for, so like ecological systems are important for those animals, mm. but also for us. And so if we were to sit back and do nothing, that's going to cause long-term impacts on humans through the deterioration of natural, natural areas. And so just from a selfish perspective, we should be stepping in right now and trying to prevent biodiversity declines because it will be helpful for humans. So I think a big problem with a lot of these management strategies is that they're set decades and decades in the future. And although I think humans would like to think themselves as particularly high functioning. I think we don't do very well with long time scales. Anything more than like five years is almost like impossible to comprehend for the general person. So what do you say to them to try to get them more motivated to try and engage or support these management practices? What I'd say is I think there's no better time than now to step in. So when you look at, for example, the Convention of Biodiversity, I believe that was that was signed in 1992 with that goal of 70% coverage. Mm. Well, it's basically an exponential curve of how many protected areas were created along the course of that, that function. So in the last 10 years, there's been a lot more protected areas created than in the first uh, you know, 10 years of that, that convention. But I think of how many potential conservation opportunities were missed during that time period because we weren't consistently working on increasing protected area coverage. And so what I would say is there's no better time than now to protect uh, species across Canada. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're, you're sitting there and you're going, well, you know, if only we'd done this two years ago, this species would still have a lot of habitat because it's impossible to reverse certain decisions that are made. You know, if you're, you're creating a new development, it's a lot harder to, to tear a development down and completely uh, rehabilitate that land 
than it is to protect that land now. So before we end, do you have any final comments you'd like to make about your work? And if our listeners only take away one thing from my chat today, what do you hope it is? Um, I hope users can, or the, sorry, I hope listeners can. <laughs> They're also users. <laughs> yeah, the users. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I think if there's one thing listeners can take away from my work, it's that it's just how important um, effective conservation measures are and also how important it is to think outside the box when it comes to conservation. Government protected areas are great and we should be increasing those, but there are other alternatives to helping conserve nature. Some of them that you can more directly impact yourself. Mm. You know, you can you can petition your government, but some of these conservation organizations, you know, they have contact information out there or some of them may focus on local areas in so all across Canada, not, not just NCC, but um, many smaller ones. So those are potential organizations you could look at um, reaching out to or seeing if they need volunteers, seeing if they need um, donations and things like that to protect your local area. And yeah, I really hope we can keep the good progress we're making to protecting species in Canada, but also improve it further. Um, so, you know, in 10 years, we're not talking about, oh, if only we protected this species. And so that brings us to the end of today's podcast. A big thanks again to our guest, Leo Custode, for joining us today. GriffinCast is brought to you by your host, me, Michael Lim, with editing assistance from Ian Smith. If you're hungry to learn more about different science topics, please check out Scribe Research Highlights. That's Scribe, S-C-R-I-B-E, Research Highlights on the University of Guelph website at uofguelph.ca. Or you can follow us on social media at UofGCPS. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Music in the podcast comes from Upbeat. There'll be details in the show notes as always. And until next time, please stay curious.